0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new
1: movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hey,
0: everybody. The Other People podcast is entirely free. All episodes of this show are available free of charge. More than 500 episodes and counting. So I count on the support of listeners to help keep things rolling if you would like to support this show you can do so at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod patreon.com slash other ppl pod okay all right thank you
1: you are not alone you have found other people you and I have a friend in
0: common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's
1: really beautiful. It what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded see what was really there.
0: And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
1: Just one person. Anyway, Just, hey, everybody, how's it going? Right. Welcome to the right. Other
0: People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in a chair in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. I have Tim Workus on the program. He's got a novel out from Penguin called The Infinite Future, much heralded uh the the title is the infinite future it is a much heralded novel it's not called the infinite future much heralded you know what i'm saying uh but tim was just here he was here moments ago we had a great conversation i kept telling him uh, i think during the interview either before or after the interview or during the interview i was telling him i was like i think you're the first mormon author that i've had on this program and the truth is that he is not because my uh recall which is like info you know notoriously bad. Uh, it's, it's notoriously bad. And I I, it slipped my mind that I had talked to Ruth Warner on this program. She wrote a memoir called the sound of gravel about her Mormon upbringing. So he is not in fact the first Mormon author that I've had. I think he's the second. And if there is another or others that I'm also failing to recall, forgive me. Uh, but anyway, Tim, uh, Tim work is coming up in just a moment. What, uh, what do I talk about? I, Lost my day job about a week ago. That's been the past few days of my existence. If I'm trying to think of something to talk about, uh, I was working for a startup in the technology space. (laughs) They always talk about that. What space are you in? I'm in the technology space, but uh, I was working in virtual reality, augmented reality, one of these startups, and, uh, it imploded essentially. Uh, which is to say like almost everybody was canned kind of ran out of uh, juice. So I don't take it personally and I feel relatively fine. It's a, it's a weird like mix of emotions because there is sadness. There's like this, like, like there's a, a sense of relief where you're like, Oh, I don't have to go there. And you know, I don't, I don't have to do that anymore, which I think is common. But then there's also like this kind of, uh, you feel sort of sad. You're like, oh, I'm going to miss the people that I worked with. And you feel sort of humiliated. You're like, oh, how did this happen? Was I not good enough? Then you feel sort of like, uh, I guess there's some bitterness. But it's like a flash. I'm really not that bitter or angry. There's like some sadness. And then like there's a sense of like uh, being philosophical about it, like pondering. Like, what is, what ha- what just happened? Capitalism didn't work. (laughs) It's a failure of capitalism. It's a harsh drug. So a a great learning experience. And uh, I know that sounds sort of corny to say, but it really was. I don't regret doing it. We'll see where things go from here. I feel uh, I I have been spending a lot of time ruminating about what I want to do next and feeling which I think is a fairly common way to feel, Uh, feeling like, where do I fit in the world? What is my purpose here? I'm 42. I'll be dead before I know it. What do I want to do? And it's instructive, I think, in the aftermath of this uh, startup implosion that the, the the things that I think about most are just the people that I worked with like, Oh, I hope they're okay. Like I'm going to miss seeing them. I wonder what's going to happen to them. Because one of the weird, you know, sort of cold realities of something like this is that I'll probably not see almost any of these people ever again in my life. It ended the moment I walked out that door. We will both go on our separate ways. We'll die. That's it. (laughs) And I find that upsetting. You know, that's the part of it where I'm like, Oh, and I, I also find myself wondering like, you know, I think in like business culture, there's just sort of like a matter of factness when things like this happen, like the emotions surrounding this sort of thing, they're, they're intense, you know, like there's a lot going on emotionally for everybody involved on every side of the equation. It's not just the people who are getting sent out into the streets. It's the people who have to do the sending too. I don't envy them either. It all comes down to money in the end. And so I guess that there's some sort of like weird mode that human beings go into in business culture where it's like well this is the way it is it's not comfortable we're all going to move on never see you again good luck you know and there's a chill to that that i find hard to process and hard to actualize as a person like i i'm like i'm hanging on like what what's going to happen to you maybe we can keep in touch via linkedin <laughs> you know i don't have that you know that that, that ability to, to detach But what do they say? You know, when you're on your deathbed, very few people are like, oh, I wish I would have contributed more to my 401k or, oh, you know, I wish I would have closed that deal with Nabisco. It's always about the people in your life. So it's interesting. We'll see what happens. I think in a perfect world, I would have like two or three weeks to just go away and like camp. Or like stay in a cabin or like go to an island and get as quiet as possible. No phone, no computer, just some book. Like just be like ultra bored and, and out in the middle of uh, nature somewhere. Get as quiet as possible and see if I could actualize some kind of epiphany about what my deepest purpose on this earth is. So that I can make an informed and intelligent decision imbued with wisdom about what I want my next step to be professionally how I want to try to create income in a manner that is not at odds with my deepest, uh, you know, values. (laughs) But how do you find that time? I've got kids and a wife. I can't just be like, honey, listen, I'm going to Fiji. I'm going to go to Tahiti and like sit on an atoll like Marlon Brando. Wrap myself in a, uh, what do you call those things? They've got like this, you know, they had them in Fiji. They're like a skirt. The men wear them. You know what I'm talking about. But just like sit there and like brood, like look at the moon, get some kind of epiphany. But is that how it actually works in the world? Is that how it works in life? I think that getting really quiet is a good place from which to make a big decision. I think that if everything's really noisy and chaotic and emotional, you wind up doing things that might be not in your best interest in the long run. But it's like sort of like when people talk about uh, in the writing context, waiting for inspiration you know, inspiration happens while you're sitting at the keyboard, like struggling. And then suddenly, you know, one day you have this moment or this burst and things take a turn. So maybe you just have to dive into something or take something, not knowing, you know, whether or not it is going to be uh, part of your deepest purpose in life or, you know, perfectly correlated with your deepest values. But then you sort of discover yourself in the process of like working your way through the muck of that. I don't know. Do you understand my quandary, my speaking in relatable terms? And then like, like (laughs) I went on Twitter, like right after this happened, I made an announcement because I was tweeting every day, a picture from the place where I would eat lunch, which became kind of a thing on my other people, uh, Twitter feed, this Thai restaurant, which is another part of my sadness. Another part of my grief over this is that I'm not going to see these people again. I have no compelling reason to go to that Thai restaurant for lunch anymore it's not uh practical, at least not right now, but it was near my office. I like the food. I'm a creature of habit, vegetarian. So I would go there and then it became a thing where I would take this picture from my uh, table every day of the Thai restaurant, like looking out onto the street and people became a fan of it. So that part of it is over. Not going to see those people again. And, uh, so I was kind of announcing like, hey, you know, the startup's over. There's not going to be any more Thai restaurant photos. And I then, as an addendum to that tweet and like a follow-up tweet, I was like, by the way, I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life. I'm open to suggestions if you have any. And I got none. (laughs) That's what's so disconcerting. Like I look to friends of mine, people who know me well, or listeners of this program who have uh, listened to me for years. And I feel like have a decent sense of who I am. I'm like, what should I do? Like, what do you guys think I would, what should I do? And people just honestly, whenever I ask that question, people are just like, I don't know. And so part of me wonders, like, can anybody answer that question for another person? Or is this like, you know, it's like, uh, you just got to figure it out for yourself. It's the nature of life. You got to forge your own path. It's every man for himself. Is that really how it is? It's every man for himself. Or are there people in your life where you can look at them and be like, you know what? You really need to be a nurse. I think you need to be a hospice worker. I think you need to get into, uh, marketing. Like what, you know, can people advise other people? Is it, is it easier to advise certain people than it is others? Am I one of these people who just neurochemically, biologically, circumstantially, whatever you want to call it, doesn't necessarily have a fit in the world. And is that actually more common than not? I think it actually might be the default mode for homo sapiens in a capitalist, uh, economic structure which exists all over the world in various forms. Some, I think more effective and humane than others. Maybe the, well, uh, I guess what I'm driving at is like, maybe the rarer circumstance is to be somebody who does like fit right in like round peg, round hole, you know, round hole or square peg, square hole. You know what I mean? I want someone to look at me and be like, Brad, like you don't see it. You've got a blind spot. Like this is what you should be doing. We all know it. We're just waiting for you to figure it out for yourself. But since it's taking some time, we're going to step in and let you know, this is it. Here's the path. The door is open. Walk through it. You're welcome. Doesn't seem to work like that. So I got to make some decisions. I got to figure out what I'm going to pursue. Got to think things over. I was even like, I was like, you know, should I try to like get a loan and like buy like some rural, like defunct summer camp? <laughs> I actually did internet searching about this where there's like cabins around a lake that are like decrepit and need to be fixed up. But I could create some sort of like writer's retreat. I would podcast from the lake. Writers would come. There would be like some sort of fee, but it would be manageable. And that would be my source of income. My family would live in this weird commune writers would come visit us it sounds like actually that could turn very dark quickly but you know what i'm saying like i'm trying to think outside the box do i do i try to open a bookstore that's also a tea house that has a meditation room and then a little podcast studio and how much would that cost does anyone want to come there could that be sustainable can i get rich from that do i need to get rich Am I placing too much emphasis on getting rich? I feel like I need to take care of my kids. I have a child who's disabled. I feel like I need to create enormous generational wealth to ensure the future of my children. Is that just the uh, function of being a responsible parent or am I misreading things? Am I out of balance? Is my head not right? Can somebody tell me? Hey, folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career. Writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also The Funniest by a Country Mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. My guest today is Tim Workus. His novel is called The Infinite Future. It is available now from Penguin Press great time talking with him. Very excited to introduce him to you if you have not uh, heard of him yet. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Workus. I
1: think as a, as a kid, especially growing up in in Utah, that it was just kind of the water I was swimming in. You know, I didn't It wasn't wasn't something I thought a lot about. And then, you know, by by high school, there's that moment where, you know, you're trying to to rebel or whatever. And um, not that, like, I was a pretty, like, straight arrow kid, but it was still, like, ah, like these Mormons, you know, a a little bit of just, like, high school fish shaking of, like, I'm not like them. Um, But, yeah, I mean, pretty minor stuff in terms of growing. You didn't
0: freak out. You didn't, like, go drop acid. Right. You didn't do that. Right. Yet. Yet. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) um and like what like what is it to be a mormon because i i I, like my understanding i read like under the banner of heaven oh sure Uh but then i've also like my i think of my sister's friend uh like the nicest family ever Mm -hmm. and i think of my passing interactions with mormons and uh you know whether it's in a work context or a friend of a friend and like i find like noticeably nice people Mm -hmm. in a way that uh you know, stands out, mm-hmm. uh, meet a lot of nice people, but I'm always like, wow, that's a really friendly, kind person. So it gets to be a little bit muddled. Like things are never simple and right. there's probably a lot more variety within the culture than like outside looking in. A lot of people mm-hmm. might suspect, you know, cause there right. is like, especially like you go, you think of going to Salt Lake city or being in Utah, there's like a, Uh, homogeneity Mm -hmm. that you sort of anticipate, but that's never the case with human beings.
1: Right, exactly, and I think it's a really interesting moment in Mormonism right now because over the past ten years or so, there's been kind of the rise of uh, the Mormon blogosphere where, yeah, you have Mormons writing about Experience that might have been marginalized in the past, that people might have been afraid to talk about at church. So yeah, I, I think the the differences within Mormonism are are becoming more and more visible um, in ways that I think are really exciting. Like but, what? Um, so I don't know. Even. I mean, one, like, political example from recently, like, um, you know, when when the church officially supported Proposition 8 in, in 2008. Um, at first, there was this, like, well, we can't talk about this, and if you disagree with this, you can't talk about it. But I feel well, like But what that's... was
0: Proposition 8 for people listening who might not be familiar?
1: Yeah, so it was a proposition—so I wasn't in California yet um, at the time, but yeah, it was a proposition um, that would illegalize gay marriage. That's right, isn't it? Um, that had already been legalized in California. So, um yeah and and so the the uh Mormon Church took, a, took an official position that um that that gay marriage should not be legalized and yeah so i i think on the ground at the time it kind of looked like oh like everyone agrees with this position except for me but as as has become more apparent over the years that that as as people have have um found these non-institutionalized spaces to talk to each other that yeah like there are a lot of people who, who are both Mormon and both, you know, support gay marriage and, and are really invested in supporting the LGBTQ community, you know? And um, so, yeah, I mean, that's just one example.
0: Yeah, no, it reminds me of being a Catholic. And, and you know, there's all these rules. There's all this, like, uh, dogma. I mean, I'm not a, I am not haven't been a practicing Catholic since I was a kid. Uh, but, you know, you're steeped in the culture, mm-hmm. and you're, I'm very familiar with it. But also acutely aware of the fact that there are so many people within the Catholic Church Uh, I mean, millions uh, all over Mm -hmm. the world who are invested in this. But at the same time, despite the fact that they have all this reverence for the Pope Mm -hmm. and for, like, the higher clergy, a a huge variety of views. Right. And it's funny because the Pope is supposedly, like, the Word of God and, like, Mm -hmm. the messenger or whatever. Isn't he like a—I think he's like a It's connected to St. Peter or something like that. This is what I should know better. (laughs) But, uh, you know, he's the authority. And yet people who are just, like, you know, basic— You know, ordinary civilian members of the church are like, no, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't agree. I'm a supporter of a woman's right to choose, despite the fact that I go to church every Sunday, Mm -hmm. or I support uh, gay marriage, despite the fact that the Pope says no. You know, and so it just strikes me as funny. It's like, you know, yeah, we have all this reverence, but no, we're not going to listen to him. And I guess that's the case too with uh, like how is the hierarchy of the Mormon Church set up? Because I think I just remembered. Or I just read this past week that they elected, like, a new council of elderly white men to run the
1: thing. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's similar to Catholicism in that there's, yeah, so uh, there's the prophet who's the head of the church who is is um, uh, positioned as as God's representative leading the church. And, yeah, I mean, it, the, the comparison to Catholicism is interesting because I think Mormonism is moving in that direction. But it's such a young church that that, that tension between, well, like, here's the official position, here's what— A lot of people on the ground actually believe that it's it's still creating a lot of conflict i mean people are still figuring out what what mormonism can or should look like uh, you know at large and what about the dogma like because this is
0: this is the big like in the church mythology and this i say this you know with respect to any religion really Mm -hmm. um but for my own uh, childhood experience catholicism it's like, and Jonah didn't really go in the belly of the whale. And like, this is, this is just a myth mm-hmm. and it doesn't even pass the smell test. And yet all these people are receiving it as fact. And it's just, it gets very discouraging to me. Uh-huh. And so then it's like Joseph Smith and the books and the tablets and the hill. And I'm just like, do you, I mean, do you receive this? Like, oh, this happened. To this guy. I mean, like, wh- where's your position on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the the church line that it's like, yeah, the this is the Book of Mormon. This is uh, you know, it was uh, golden plates that Joseph Smith was given by an angel that are an ancient record. And yeah, I mean, my position these days is, yeah, I don't know, I don't know if the the Book of Mormon is you know a historical document. You know, it's um, and it's probably not. It's probably <laughs> right, right, and like the. The question more and more—the more interesting question, I think, for me is, like, well, what can we learn from this book? Or, like, what, you know, what does this book and the way Joseph Smith talked about this book suggest about how people commune with God or, like, receive communication from God or or things like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, these churches, because they have, like, a, you know, like a, a structure and an organizational structure and a bunch of resources and facilities— you know, they, they're they there to facilitate community among people. And p- if people are on some kind of uh, spiritual exploratory quest, they might provide some kind of framework, uh-huh. but it's, it, to me, it feels like at best or, or in its best uh,
1: form, it's like a starting point. Yeah. It's not
0: an end point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah. I, and I like the idea of like a church being a resource for people rather than, rather than a police officer or something. You know, b- that I was going to say
0: babysitter, but right. you know, but yeah, same thing. And like, there's a social context that as somebody who is not practicing and is just sort of like a free agent, you know, like I'm vaguely Buddhist, mm-hmm. but I don't go to a, I've never been inside a Buddhist temple. I've been to a, a monastery for like a, you know, a day, like one of these like days of mindfulness kind of thing, but that's the, the closest I've ever come. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any kind of a team and I don't have any kind of a place to go, which I can find myself envious of when people do. I suppose it's like I mean they're all around I could I could pick one but I'm just too lazy.
1: Uh-huh. Fair enough. <laughs> uh,
0: but your book has uh, Mormon characters in it right. which we don't often see in literary fiction mm-hmm. or on literary podcasts. We don't right. see like you know the Mormon uh, author come through. So you know, speaking to the clichés or to the like the broad generalities that are often applied to Mormonism and you know Utah mm-hmm. like what was it like to create characters as a Mormon author? From a Mormon place, like was there a lot of? Did you feel a lot of pressure to get it right? Did you feel like a sense of redress where you're like, you know what? I'm going to try to uh, subvert people's expectations. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, those pressures are definitely there. Um, when I first started writing mostly short stories, I didn't write about Mormons at all, just because I didn't want to deal with any of that. But yeah, with this book. I'm interested in the prospect of writing about something that has Mormon characters but isn't all-consumingly Mormon, you know, that um, that I think that can be a limiting way that both people inside the church and outside of the church can think about, you know, think about Mormon representation in, in literature or in film or whatever, that, yeah, if something – talks about Mormons at all this has to be a referendum on on Mormonism and so yeah I wanted I wanted to write about Mormons but I wanted it to be part of a book with larger concerns that um, you know there are there are Mormon characters who are worried about things that m- might be particular t- to Mormonism but dovetail with with um, other dynamics in the book things like you know how do people uh, make or find meaning in their lives how do people deal with loneliness these kind of much bigger questions that that uh, that elements of mormonism might intersect with
0: and there's also like a science fiction aspect to you right and and it was inspired at least partially by ray bradbury
1: right yeah so um yeah i was a big ray bradbury fan when i was a kid um it was probably like my first exposure to short fiction actually was reading um ray bradbury short stories but yeah when he died i read uh the martian chronicles which i hadn't hadn't gotten to before but yeah I was really struck by like the nostalgia of that book that it's you know it's happening in in the future but everything is but is also just really tied to this like 19th century version of America kind of like or or early 20th like kind of white picket fence type thing so yeah I um I like that like that contradiction in science fiction is always compelling to me that it's like looking at the future but there's also like a nostalgia or at best like just like a real rootedness in the present. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something I wanted to get at with this book, is, you know, how do you write a uh, a science fiction narrative that feels really nostalgic?
0: How did you, like, and as a kid, you said you were reading a lot of Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Uh, was your house filled with books? Were your parents writerly?
1: Yeah, my parents are both big readers. So, yeah, always a lot of books around. Um, uh, yeah, my parents are, are pretty eclectic readers. So, yeah, the...
0: and like, But, see, this is something that, I think, from the outside looking in i'm thinking like utah salt lake city provo mormonism there might be some sort of restriction on what kind of literature would be in a house mm-hmm. if you can't have coca-cola like can you read subversive literary fiction uh-huh. like did you have a more permissive uh you know uh, uh, parental situation mm-hmm. than most or what was the case i
1: don't think necessarily more than most i mean thankfully there was both good fiction and coca-cola at our house so um that <laughs> so was much good. coke yes. in,
0: in your mormon household yep
1: yep um So, yeah, I mean, I don't think my parents would have been huge outliers, necessarily. I mean, I'm not sure a ton of other people, like, in the suburbs were as, like, had the same, like, quite the same literary interests as my parents, but, like, lots of people did at the same time, so.
0: Okay. And so,
1: uh, like, did either of your
0: parents try to do anything artistic or creative with their
1: lives? Um, They both did a lot with literature. So, my dad um, is a pediatrician, but... Uh, studied German before that and got a master's in German and was kind of on that academic track, but then changed his mind. And uh, my mom is a librarian, so they're both both big book people.
0: Do Mormon moms do a lot of journaling? Did I read that somewhere? Is, um, that, is that like a cultural thing?
1: Yeah, no, that is a cultural thing that, yeah, like, um, really emphasizes, like, there's this emphasis on, like, family history and like kind of discovering who your ancestors are and also like leaving leaving a record for posterity
0: right that's why i do this podcast yeah so my future uh my future i don't know what do you call them progeny is that the right word can listen back and figure out who they come from yeah that's (laughs) great in horror (laughs) to be terrified um did you go on a mission i did you did where'd you go
1: i went to sao paulo brazil
0: okay oh so then sao paulo figures into your book so you have experience
1: in do you speak portuguese i do
0: Wow! Say something.
1: Uh, wait, uh, ah! <laughs> I freeze up. On command. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what do you want me to say? I don't know. say I went to I went to Brazil and was a missionary. Fui uh, para Brasil e servi un Okay,
0: so you go like, and this is a uh, as a as a Mormon, you are acquired at around the age of eighteen.
1: Uh, it's eighteen now. They can go at eighteen. When I when I went, it was nineteen.
0: Okay, so you go in nineteen. You spend two years right as a missionary trying to convert people to the church. Right how what's that like
1: that was crazy um did you get some did you did you make some sales <laughs> um some yeah i mean yeah it it was such a huge experience like in so many ways I, it was so um yeah it was just like it was so much i mean I had lived in Salt Lake my whole life and just like one like living in the middle of this like megalopolis that that is sao paulo was was um i really liked but was really different from what I'd experienced growing up. And yeah, like being a missionary is weird because you're walking around and like, it's almost like you become a cartoon character or something that like, you're walking around in the shirt and tie. And it's like this, like, don't you
0: have to wear like a particular underwear? yeah what is that
1: well, yeah, so that's like a general Mormon thing, so like Mormons who have gone to the temple um that yeah they wear yeah that it's um that it's underwear that like reminds uh, people who have been to the temple about like uh things they learn and like covenants they make and things like that
0: and your underwear reminds you of this stuff
1: yeah, so what, it's what like, does it
0: look like? Is it like a special kind of underwear
1: <laughs> yeah i mean there's a the church put up a video online a year or two ago that like actually shows it, and yeah, I mean it's just kind of um. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like, I think, any religious kind of garment or something that, you know, like a yarmulke or something that, you know, this has. And, yet, yeah, like, for for most people, like, does this, like, on a daily basis remind them of anything? Probably not, but, like, that's the idea. Yeah, okay. Um,
0: and then, so you're walking around. Are you, like, have you seen the Book of Mormon?
1: I actually haven't yet. I've heard the soundtrack. Right? I haven't, I
0: haven't yeah. seen it. I, I mean, I, I just, a little bit, I've read about it, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. But you're in like a white shirt. Is it? There's a particular dress code.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a dress code. So depending on like the climate of where you are, it's either a suit or like a, a white shirt and slacks.
0: Okay, and you're going around, and most of the do people rude to you?
1: Um, people are actually really nice in Sao Paulo. I think there's like a pretty strong culture of hospitality. So yeah, people are actually really nice generally. Like, I mean, some people were mean, but like. Yeah, mostly it was like, oh, it's a hot day. Would you like a glass of water? Or like, oh, it's tea time. Like, would you like some tea? You know, so yeah, that was that was nice, actually.
0: Okay, so take me inside of one of these meetings where you have success. Uh-huh. Like, you're talking to somebody. You're like, I have this book and this religion that's going to help change your life. Uh... And they say, yeah. What's the next step? (laughs) Right.
1: Right. I mean, so it's kind of by stages. So in the first meeting, it's like, oh, like, you know, we tell them about Joseph Smith. We tell them about the Book of Mormon. And we leave a copy of the Book of Mormon with them and invite them to come to church. And so, yeah, we leave a copy of the Book of Mormon with, uh, like— Some sections marked for them to read, and then say, "You know, will you read this? Can we come back?" And then it goes from there. Do you ever ever doubt yourself? You were like, "What the hell am I doing?" Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it's that I think. Yeah. I mean, missionaries can kind of look like automatons from the outside, but they're you know like. 19 and 20 and 21-year-old, like, young men and women who are, yeah, like, thinking things. And and I don't think it's necessarily always comfortable for, for a lot of missionaries, yeah. Well, and
0: I think, like, too, there's a, there's got to be some sort of strategy, I would imagine, in terms of selecting people to be missionaries at that particular age. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like there is some, I don't know, there's some, like, sort of, like, fire or energy or idealism right. that coincides with being, like, 19 years old that mm-hmm. uh, now at age 42... I couldn't generate if I tried.
1: Right. Right. No, totally.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, so, like, they know what they're doing. They're like, okay, we'll send the 19-year-olds out. Like, they can live in, you know, uh, relative squalor. I'm imagining you weren't living in, like, high on the hog down in Brazil. Right. Right. You know, and uh, you're young. You're excited to be out in the world. It must be fun to go trek around Brazil. How do they pay you? Like, what do you get? Do you have, like, a
1: stipend? No. So... You actually have to pay to go, so you pay—and, like, basically you're just covering your expenses, but the way it works is that it's an adjusted rate depending on uh, what country you're from and, like, what your economic situation might be. And so everyone pays into a common fund, and then that common fund pays, like, rent and food for for everybody. So you have to pay to be a missionary. Right.
0: Wow. That's shrewd. Yeah. People know what they're doing. They're masters. Yep. Um, all right. Well, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm always curious about people who are able to find real meaning, and um, I don't know. Like I have I have a lot of friends who participate in church services, and I just can't. And yet, uh, there's an I guess there's some envy. There's some confusion. Mm-hmm. There is uh, I, I can find myself just feeling like an alien because i can't access it Mm -hmm. Uh, i guess there are too many questions in my head and i get tripped up and if you have questions how do you i guess you just kind of push them to the side or you just accept them
1: um mostly accept them i mean i think again it's like one of those things that there's even just like yeah a lot of diversity within Mormonism of how like what people's relationship is to the church that yeah like I have like lots of pretty big questions and it's not that I set them aside or even that I'm necessarily okay with them I think it's more what I said earlier that I view Mormonism more and more like as a research as a resource than a a thing of like this is what you need to be doing this is how you need to be feeling that yeah like I do wonder like what Everything like what all of this means and and some in some ways Mormonism provides compelling you know narratives or um answers to me, but in other ways it's like, yeah, I don't know, like that doesn't really do it for me and what about, so, what about like
0: human suffering like right. what about like oh God, I'm fucking depressed right, like what does Mormonism tell you there
1: yeah, so the the Mormon answer is that um is that human agency is is important there that like God values the the kind of human right to make decisions so much that that god is not going to intervene and stop people from like inflicting suffering on others um so that's that's kind of the party line answer so it's like it's up to you yeah pull yourself up by your bootstraps Uh, kind of or just like yeah that like if if you see suffering it's not because god doesn't exist it's because god isn't going to intervene
0: do mormons go to therapy
1: Um, I do. I mean, a a lot of Mormons don't, but I I wouldn't say it's like super common. Like, and I think it maybe maps generational things or like, you know, might, might uh, map onto like generational trends generally with therapy. I think there's maybe less of a stigma uh, with therapy with people of my generation generally. Um, and I think that's probably true within my generation within Mormonism as well. But yeah.
0: Yeah. Like I haven't done much therapy at all. I've been to one therapist one time in my life and Probably should do more, but I was reading an interview with uh, Jordan Peele, the guy who directed Get Out, uh-huh. like just the other day, and he was talking. Have you seen Get Out? Yeah. Okay, so he's talking about like the hypnosis thing, uh-huh. and like where uh, Catherine Keener's like dinging the little you know teacup. And for those of you listening who haven't um, seen Get Out, it's not going to be like a tremendous spoiler, but in the interview, he was talking about his decision creatively to integrate therapy and hypnosis into. A, like what is like a, I guess like a horror movie mixed with like a cultural commentary. It's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit hard to classify, but he was saying like, you know, I think hypnosis is generally scary for people because there's some surrender of, um, one's own agency. Oh, you know, uh-huh. you're sort of under control of somebody else in that scenario. But he also said that in the African American community, therapy is sort of, um, like you it's looked down upon. Maybe that's not the right way to characterize it, but there's like some trepidation, about like'm you know i 'm not going to go to therapy, i 'm just going to go to churches, I think what uh-huh. he said, and that 's kind of like the generalized cultural response which I had never given much thought to, mm-hmm. um, but you know black people in America typically haven 't done a ton of therapy. Maybe Mormon people have it. I feel like Catholics and Jews, like, that's all we do. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I don't know. I hadn't really put my mind to it, but it made me stop for a second and think about it.
1: Yeah, no, and I do think that, like, I'm not going to therapy. I'm going to church. Dynamic is definitely there in Mormonism. That's definitely something I've seen and heard.
0: Yeah. But are you really grappling with your shit? Like, I do meditation, and, like, I feel like I watch my shit, but I don't necessarily know if I grapple with it Mm -hmm. in a deep way. Like, is it is it enough to just know that it's there and to recognize that it, like, comes and goes? Or do you need to go in there and, like, tease it apart and, like, figure it out and, like, yeah. try to find some sort of, like, more resourceful way to, uh, you know, language it to yourself or behave in response mm-hmm. to it?
1: Yeah. And I don't know. For me, I mean, one of the biggest things... With therapy, was just being able to identify that kind of stuff, just like label stuff I'm doing, label ways I'm thinking. Um, just do, do you name still to go,
0: it. or is this like in the past?
1: Um, I don't go right now, but yeah,
0: in the past. Here yeah. and there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think like one of the big challenges, I used to say this to myself in college. was like, I was like, I'm trying to figure out what to say to myself when I talk to myself. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way to think about it.
0: <laughs> uh, because you can, I, you know, I can find myself like being really uh, judgmental, like uh, of my own behaviors and thoughts or of other people, or I can get into like a dark mode where I view life through, I think like a pretty bleak lens, you know, like people, I get down on people, Uh-huh. like down on homo sapiens, Sure, you know, and it's, I think it's pretty easy to do. Right. Oh yeah. Like I was just writing a letter to a friend, uh, yesterday where I was like, wow, I'm like, I think I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet. Like if you start to if you really look at like yeah. the full global population, like I'm doing great, and I'm struggling, mm-hmm. and so I'm like, what does that say about our species, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. If, I'm like, if I'm like close to peak Homo sapien in terms of good fortune, like, it doesn't you know I'm shorting Homo, sapien, you know, to use the parlance of like investing, like I think uh-huh. it's like go short on Homo sapiens, like we're not we're not going to make it. Uh-huh. I don't know, <laughs> Try to like maintain some degree of black humor. Um, anyway, to get back to you, like you're in high school. Uh, in Salt Lake City? Yeah. P- public uh, public school? Right. And most of your friends are uh, Mormon-Caucasian?
1: Um, I would say maybe like half Mormon.
0: Okay. So there's a mix in your public yeah. high school. Mm-hmm. What are the kids who are not Mormon, how are they treated in Salt Lake City? Is there some Um,
1: There's some tension. I wouldn't say it's huge. Um, there's maybe... I mean, yeah. There's some tension. There's just because like Mormonism is such like a thick culture, um, but nothing crazy. Were you
0: advised not to hang out with the non-Mormon kids?
1: Not really. I mean, when when uh, church leaders are talking to youth, like there is a lot of rhetoric of like you need to choose friends who like uphold your values and things like that. But uh, there's really like nothing explicit of like don't hang out with kids who aren't Mormon or anything. What's
0: the Mormon position on like psychedelics?
1: Um, I think opposed. Opposed. Yeah.
0: You never did them no there's still time i know (laughs) (laughs) here let me open this drawer well uh no i just i am always fascinated uh to talk to people about that because i feel like those experiences for me were powerful um and like sort of blew up a lot of i don't know and maybe in good and bad ways but it really like uh, i felt like changed me
1: Hmm. interesting
0: um or maybe like and but the thing about it is that those experiences are sort of like inherently elusive. Mm-hmm. Like you go through them and it's like super powerful. And then in the mm-hmm. aftermath, you're like, what the fuck just happened? Interesting. And it's hard to even recall. Uh-huh. And so you have this sort of like broad sense of how powerful it was, but the specificities hmm. sort of escape you. And uh, I ask almost every guest if they've ever had psychedelic experiences to see if they can remember things and uh-huh. try to tell me what the hell happened.
1: Yeah. Does anybody, Like, yeah, what do people say?
0: Uh, I mean, I think it's a, there's a lot of commonality. I think a uh-huh. lot of people feel like a general power to it and uh, you know, the slipperiness of the experience. Uh, some people, like I had um, Jarrett Middleton on the program. He was a guest that I feel like is way more experienced with that kind of stuff than I, and he was able to be articulate about it at a level that most people, at least that I've spoken with, haven't been mm-hmm. able to. So I don't know. It's one of my fixations. Yeah. And, and yet, I mean, this is something I haven't, really done beyond, uh, like, smoking weed, which I guess falls into that category since, you know, I was 20 years old. So it's amazing to be this fixated on it 22 years (laughs) later. (laughs) Need to get some new hobbies. Hmm. Um, But uh, as a a high school kid, reading lots of sci-fi, like, anything else that you were reading?
1: Yeah. um, What was I reading in high school? I mean, I remember my senior year, I read, like, three books that were huge, that were, like... I didn't know books could do this. And it was, um, one of them was uh, Atonement by Ian McEwen, which came out around that time. The other one was uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shabon, And then uh, The Miracle Life of Edgar Mint by Brady Udall, which, um, yeah, it had, like, Mormon people in it, but wasn't, like, just about Mormons. And, like, Brady Udall grew up Mormon and knows how to write about Mormons. And, like, that was just kind of this, like, whoa uh, moment. But, Did you
0: ever read Under the Banner of Heaven? Um, yeah. What's the church position? Possess- I mean, the church can't... They probably can't stand that book.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I believe the church even, like... Put out a statement that said like, "Don't read this book." <laughs> yeah. Not good for
0: not good for PR. Uh-huh. But what was your reaction to it?
1: Um, I think it's a fine book. Like, I'm generally a fan of John Krakauer, and I think he's like an amazing journalist. I think he's an okay cultural critic of Mormonism. I think there are other people who are saying more interesting things. And there was a period of like three or four years where he was like the go-to guy on like news programs and stuff for like like we need to know something about Mormons. Like, let's talk to John Krakauer. And I think he like maybe overextended uh, his expertise there. But um, yeah, I mean, uh,
0: but it's also like, there's sensational aspects. I mean, I guess different religions, I mean, there might be uh, variations from religion Mm -hmm. to religion. Uh, I think the polygamy and the Boulder city or whatever it is, like there are aspects of Mormonism that uh, are truly sensational yeah absolutely but there's also like mainstream mormonism uh-huh. and i think you could say a lot of uh, similar things uh, or at least along similar lines with like for example islam uh-huh. where you have like the bulk of mainstream uh, muslims who are i don't know just ordinary people and then you have certain um or um subcultures within it that are way more extreme mm-hmm. but that's that's religion and over time i guess it fluctuates from from faith system to faith Mm -hmm. system
1: and yeah for me like under the banner of heaven like it's less the content and more kind of the posture like in the afterward to the paperback edition there's like this exchange that i think yeah just really like embodies like what drives me nuts about discourse about mormon culture is like so john krakauer is talking about how you you know after his book came out um the church like publicity department or whatever said like this isn't a book that should be read this is um so right away you're going to want to read it right exactly so like on the yeah like on the one hand like you have the like church position or like the church statement which is ridiculous that like telling people not to read books is is not great um but then like john krakauer's reaction is like this like shocked indignation of like i can't believe they like told people not to read my book where like he's like been researching ways that like mormonism has like um you know, stifled dissent or things like that. So, I mean, that seems to me, like, disingenuous on his part also, that it's, like, kind of playing the part of the, like, heroic uh, investigative journalist. Where truth it's like, teller. Yeah, where it's, like, really, he doesn't have any skin in the game. Like, there are people who are who are making arguments that are similar to his, that are more interesting, who, who might be more closely connected to Mormonism, who might actually have, like, skin in the game. Again. I was going to
0: say, like, if you're going to find a cultural critic of a religion... And somebody who is issuing uh, deeply considered dissent, right? It makes it might make sense to have it be somebody who was like raised in it, right? And then found it to be, uh, I don't know, not what they're in, not what they wanted to stay in. You know, like, yeah. I, like for example, this was what makes me such an eloquent critic of Catholicism, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't even know like what the Pope's deal is, but. Um, I get it, you know, and I, I feel like when I read it, I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's talking about, a, it's telling a particular, a particularly sensational story about a particularly uh, sensational um, subculture within the religion. Uh-huh, but if great. I think back to, like, my sister's buddy growing up, like, they were so far from that. Mm-hmm. They're just a nice family.
1: Yeah, and I think that, like, violence is something that, that Mormons need to grapple with. Like, it's it's not something that I don't think... It's not something that shouldn't be discussed, but yeah,
0: and like gender, I mean, polygamy, like, right,
1: right, right. I mean, that's a thing. Totally. That's, yeah. a, that's a real oh, thing. Yeah. You yeah. know that like
0: you gotta and like gender equity and uh, racism in the church. Right. Yeah, you know, so there are things to criticize that I think it's very valid, but um, you know, you could say the same thing about uh, Catholicism. You could Say the same thing about so many of them. Like mm-hmm. there, are, I mean, Buddhism right now in uh, in Myanmar. You know, the Rohingya Muslims are being like, there's a genocide happening. So there's no religious faith on earth that seems to be clean of this kind of corruption. And yet, when's the last time you saw a riot conducted by atheists? There, it's a good question. There you go. When's the last time an atheist had like seven wives? I don't know. I don't see it. Maybe it just doesn't get the news. Maybe atheists are just... I think atheists tend not to organize. They're just sort of disparate and like mm-hmm. uh, confused and like... Or not confused or... Some atheists, I think, can be every bit as dogmatic as like a fervent religious person. Sure. You know, it can become kind of the flip side of that same coin. So, I don't know. I I, uh, I feel like... I feel like a person who lives in some sort of confused ground. Uh, I feel, I feel unable to grab onto something too tightly, but maybe that'll change. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? It's fascinating to me as I'm sure you can tell. And, uh, when you were in school and, uh, you know, growing up as a teenager, uh, I could, you know, I think back to like Catholic going through confirmation, all these questions of sex and sexual behavior, Mm uh, Like, Catholic schools are notorious for being, like, extrasexual, precisely because (laughs) it's, like, so oppressive. Mm -hmm. You're told that, like, you know, having sex before marriage is a cardinal sin. God's not going to forgive you, or at Mm -hmm. least that was, like, the, the, you know, the dictum back in the day. But, like, is that the case with Mormonism? Where it's, like, don't have sex, and everyone's, like, yeah, let's have sex. We're 18.
1: Yeah, I mean, the first half, definitely. The second half, maybe not so much. And I'm not sure why. I mean, because there is that, yeah, that, like... Don't have sex. Don't think about you know like nothing. Like
0: wear this underwear. <laughs> right,
1: right. But like, but yeah, I don't think there's as much, for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's just not as much like backlash. The... Right. Weird. Yeah.
0: Um. So like, there are a lot of like a lot of Mormons are virgins when they get married. Yeah. For real. Yeah. That's it. I mean, because like, uh, I don't know. I guess back in the day, I don't know too many Catholics. I mean, I guess I haven't asked everybody about their virginity situation, but it seems, seems it seems like statistically unlikely that people, or maybe they get like, you know, once they're in like a committed relationship, then they're just like, okay, well, we can just press fast forward a little bit. But, Uh uh, I actually have like, this is an issue about which like sexual behavior I find in the, in the present day is something that I actually find, um, more confusing than most. Hmm. Because I think that people have casual sex, like, you know, in younger generations more easily. And I I say younger generations, speaking of my own, Mm -hmm. than maybe, like, my parents' generation. Though maybe that's a misnomer. Yeah, I don't know. It just feels like with, like, in, like, Tinder culture or whatever, where you're, like... Or, like, social... There's hookups. Like, this has been written about. And I think about it as a parent. uh, Like, the only advice that I would give... Like, I don't think... I'm not necessarily sure if it's if it's a good idea to have sex with somebody that you're not in uh at least some kind of relationship with. Mm-hmm. Like just like, cuz I hooked up with people like when I was like drunk in college or whatever and like if I'm being honest with myself, like I never woke up the next day and was like that was great. I was always like who are you and like what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> like you know, and like uh I don't know. I think that I think that if I'm listening to like my deepest self, I think that it's it's more advisable to just be in a rela- like a committed relationship with somebody where it's like, we're in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Then it's okay. That's what I think I'm going to tell my kids.
1: No, that sounds like a good, I'm
0: going to evolving. You know, I'm yeah. evolving on this. I'm trying to make sure I'm like, got some wisdom in my life. Right. It's, <laughs> it's hard to know, you know, right. I, I, not that they're probably going to ask me when it comes to pass, but, um, at what age did you want to be a writer?
1: Um, I mean, I was thinking about writing from a pretty young age. Like it was, it was the kind of thing that like when you're writing something, uh, in your elementary school class, like people often, like I often got big reactions to what I wrote that like, it would be like funny or silly. And yeah, I really liked that. Um, so I mean, kind of vaguely on the radar from a pretty early age.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Like that's a common story I hear from people is there's like the teachers and students or, you know, peers are like, you're good at this. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, when people tell you you're good at something, you take it to heart. Right. Right. (laughs) Like finally, I gotta know what I'm supposed to do with my life. But, uh, where did you go to college?
1: Uh, Brigham Young University. Okay. So you yeah. went to
0: Brigham Young. Yeah. Is there like a literary scene there? Did you get yeah. into?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, um, did, I majored in English, but took, yeah, took creative writing classes. Um, and yeah, met a lot of people. I mean, I was not thrilled to go to BYU necessarily, but it's also very, very affordable if you're Mormon. Sure. Um, like, as you know on a par with the state school cuz it's subsidized by uh the church so um yeah i was not necessarily excited to go but it ended up being a great experience because i ended up meeting a lot of other mormons who think like i do and you know that was different that was um surprising and refreshing and
0: are you consider are you would you consider yourself like a subversive mormon or a left wing mormon yeah or? okay yeah, And so you go to college, and then you find some other people in your tribe. Yeah, yeah. The, and the, like At the coffee shop. What? <laughs> at the coffee <laughs> right. shop. Right. <laughs> like well, the, the beatnik Mormons. You
1: right, know? right. And yeah, so that was really big for me. Um, and yeah, in fact, like that's where my wife and I met. Um, we both worked at, like we were both writing tutors at the writing center. And yeah, it, that's kind of the like click that formed was was you know the, the other people that worked there um so yeah i mean that was huge for me and then yeah like really solid uh, professors um uh, so yeah i had a really really good experience there
0: okay so but english major right were you making attempts at writing fiction then
1: yeah, I was. Um, I was writing short stories, and I um, I think I published one short story when I was an undergrad. Um, where? Uh, uh, where was it? Um,
0: like online or like in a print journal?
1: Yeah, in a print journal. Um, what's it called? Ruminate, I think it was called. So, okay. yeah, I mean, that was really encouraging, and um, yeah.
0: All right, so then you get out of college. What, are you 34? Yeah. Okay, so you get out of college... And uh, what's next?
1: Yeah, so I applied for MFA programs and didn't get in anywhere. Um, Where so did you I, apply? Uh, like everywhere. Um, all I, the
0: big ones? Did you go like Iowa and all that kind of stuff? Yeah,
1: Iowa. And then like mid-level ones as well. Like, yeah, I applied to like 20 different schools. And you got shut uh, down. Yeah. What, what was your response? Uh, it was pretty discouraging, um, and that's yeah, it was pretty discouraging. So my next move was I started a master's program at BYU, a master's in um, American literature, and decided that like if I wanted to get a short story collection published, like I needed a novel. So yeah, my response was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna reapply to MFA programs in the near future, but like in the meantime, like I need to use this master's uh, program to like write a novel um so yeah
0: and that's what you did so you you, you go back you're studying american literature but you're basically just hiding out to write right that's pretty good
1: yeah (laughs) it ended up working out so yeah that's um that's when i wrote my first novel or at least most of it and um yeah i wrote my first novel and yeah i mean did like learn a lot in in the program as well but yeah the my my top priority really was like i need to i need to get a novel
0: and and uh it was published by
1: um it was published by Tyrus Books, which is defunct now they got acquired by some Oh, Let's see which it's an imprint of Simon and Schuster. I can't remember which oh, one, but that's pretty
0: good. Yeah. So, did you find an agent? I did. Okay. So, how did that how did that happen?
1: Um, so, I started. So, when I finished the novel, I finished. Uh, I finished uh, the first year of my uh, PhD program and started uh, querying agents, um, and that took about a year. Um, uh, and ultimately it was through, um, one of my professors, Amy Bender, that she knew she uh, taught at Brigham Young? Uh, no, at, um, USC. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. And after, uh, after BYU, I got into the PhD program at USC. So, oh, okay, um, that's what brought you out here. That's what brought me out here. Yeah. Amy Bender's
0: uh, been on the show. Yeah. I, I talked to her by that. phone, but she was, uh, I think she had like just had twins. Oh yeah. Right. And was writing like in like weird, like five minute pockets uh-huh. in between like nursing, <laughs> right. nursing her babies or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, but, so you, but you, uh, go to USC and uh, still getting your PhD Mm -hmm. and live down in Orange County because your girlfriend or wife?
1: Yeah. My wife's, uh, finishing up a PhD at UCI.
0: Okay. So you guys are both going to be academics.
1: Uh, that was the plan. The job market is terrible though. So we'll see. I mean, my wife, I think has, uh, found the dissertation writing experience really isolating and discouraging. And I think, um, she's looking at, um, like, administrative jobs at the univer- at universities, so, like, teaching and learning centers, it's hard like that. To get,
0: a, to get a plum job as a tenured professor at a university, it's competitive. Yeah, it's bad. Because it's, it's cushy.
1: Yeah, it's gotten really bad since, like, 2011. Like, it's just...
0: Well, b- why, because more people are trying to do it?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. And also, like, the recession, like, you know, yeah, universities are getting less and less funding, Um, more and more um, adjunct jobs.
0: Adjunct jobs don't pay shit. right. They just, uh, it's like you get paid less than a, I mean, it's it's pretty pathetic how little they pay. Mm-hmm. And I don't, like, it feels like kind of a, I don't know, there's a, I feel like a, a sense of injustice with respect to that. It feels like they're taking advantage of people.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I, I think some universities are starting to step up a little and make the adjunct positions a little more stable and a little more.
0: I say this as somebody who adjuncted for five years. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. I know firsthand. Right, 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 right. Them. And it's like, it's like, you know, it's a, it's a rewarding job, but after a while you're like. Holy hell! I'm working my ass off right. for five dollars an hour. Right. You know when you when you do the math, mm-hmm. because like teaching all the hours that you spend um, in the classroom pale in comparison to all the work that you have to do out of it. Oh yeah. I mean you're, you know especially yeah. in creative writing, you're reading like five hundred pages a week and right. grading people. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a lot. So, um, well you know, but if you have the PhD and you have it from uh, reputable schools, at least you have that in your back pocket. Right. You never know what what comes up. Right. Um, and then are you working on a book? Like another book? Yeah, I am. You are. How mm-hmm. far along are you?
1: Uh, I have a very, very sloppy draft done.
0: Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, It's better than nothing. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: And then is that how you work? Like, like how do you... Like, are you... I'm imagining you're pretty disciplined. Mm-hmm. You get up in the morning. You drink caffeine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, oh, sinner. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, so... Yeah. But, I mean, you have a coffee. Dawn, are you writing in the morning?
1: Um, not first thing. So, um... We have a son uh three year old so my wife and I trade off um, taking care of him and he's in full time uh daycare now, which is great um but so yeah, like today, for instance, like I got up, took him to school, came back normally i would yeah start writing after I got back from dropping. Do you him do off. word count um on, yeah, for the draft for this last novel, I, I tried doing word count just to because like with all like with my previous two novels, it was like I just like labored so much over the the first draft and like they were just like a mess every time. And so yeah, I'm tr- with this third one. I was trying to find kind of a sweet spot of you know um, putting enough thought into it that the that the first draft can be uh, useful, like a useful gateway into better drafts, but not so much that it's like why did I spend like a week on this chapter that I'm just like ditching completely.
0: It's hard. I've talked about this before with people. It's like the, the old adage about letting yourself write a sloppy first draft and being permissive and not restricting yourself creatively and like just letting it flow and just getting the thing down on paper and Mm -hmm. you can fix it later. What I've found is that if I get too permissive, it's just a, it's just a shit pile of pages that are useless. Mm -hmm. And so it's like trying to find some balance between not being restrictive and also, doing my best right but it's hard
1: it is it's really
0: hard do you have perfectionist tendencies yeah okay yeah me too
1: <laughs> <laughs> takes
0: one to know one uh-huh. um but you do that you work seven days a week uh five five yeah and then you recharge or deal with your kid yeah right um have you ever had i mean like what about like depression doubt you ever thought about just like chucking it? It sounds, yeah. like you, it sounds like you've had success, though. You were in your twenties, you published a book, mm-hmm. published your next book. It's mm-hmm. been great critical reception. Got a beautiful cover, published by Penguin. So mm-hmm. like you're on you're on the right track.
1: Yeah, things are going well. I think I think it's more just the question of like, okay, like how do I keep paying for this? You know, how do I how do I make money and have time to write?
0: I think you sell black market Coca-Cola there back in go. Utah. There you go. That's what you're going to do. Yeah. Open up a distributorship. Um, is there a like is there a, a grand plan that you have? Like do you do you have any do you ever step back and say like okay, so this is where mm-hmm. I am now at age 34. Right. This is where I want to be when I'm 64. Mm-hmm. Do you think in that kind of terms?
1: Not really. I mean, and it's so I mean just the like kind of hard scrabble graduate student existence, it's like okay, what am I going to be doing like 2 years from now is is the scope that I'm focusing on these days.
0: Mm. And have you gotten any advice from like the Amy Benders of the world or colleagues or teachers that you've had?
1: Yeah, I mean and even just looking in terms of of like academic jobs is you know I know people who have gotten tenure track jobs, but these days it 's a matter of just like going on the market like three to five years or something like that and so yeah, if that 's still what I want to do, then it 's like okay, well, I guess like one, the question is do I want to do that? like do I want to keep applying and applying and applying, and if so, you know how do i how do I fund myself during that time?
0: Yeah, and what about like writing nonfiction? Have you ever thought about writing a memoir? Have you ever thought about Addressing Mormonism, um, for example, or like, you know, your childhood or like mm-hmm. the experiences that you've had in some kind of memoir or cultural critique, mm-hmm. especially if you've read yeah. cultural critiques that you found dissatisfying.
1: Right. Um, not really. I mean, I like fiction for working through that. I mean, for me, part of it is just like, I like how with fiction I can almost like trick myself into thinking about those things. Like, those aren't necessarily the things. I want to be, like, writing about or thinking about when I sit down, but, like, they end up creeping in, and, like, I get to the end of the book, and it's like, oh, wait, like, I just thought a lot about um, what – about, like, you know, authoritarian dynamics in Mormonism, but, like, that was not what I, like, sat down to write about. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, just as a writer, like, just that – the directness of of um, nonfiction kind of throws me somehow.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I feel like that's something some writers write better in an imaginative mode, mm-hmm. you know, and, and are able to access the truths more easily sure. that way. Whereas mm-hmm. like others, it's like, I like to deal with the real stuff. Mm-hmm. You right. Know? So it's just a matter of preference. But right. You're also a fan of Bolaño. Yes. That's a big influence. He's he's influential with a lot of people. Yeah. I've only read one Bolaño book and it was like, I guess it's like minor Bolaño. Oh like, yeah, which was one like, was it? I'm trying to remember the title, but it was the, it was set in some coastal Spanish hotel. And it was, like, really, like, haunting, and oh, I, couldn't, uh-huh. I couldn't stop reading it. Mm-hmm. And then I've meant to be, I've meant to read Savage Detectives mm-hmm. in 20, is it 2666? Yeah. I've meant to read those books, but they're big. That, right. And I'm always like, oh, do I, like, do I have the time to uh-huh. invest? And I just haven't gotten around to it, but I... Uh, I loved what I read of his.
1: Yeah, and his short—I like—I think he's one of those like rare people whose short stories are as interesting as his novels, but like for slightly different reasons.
0: What um, like what is it?
1: Um, like his short stories are like really some of them at least are really like punchy or um really like my favorite one of his I forget what it's called but it's about this guy who um dies while dancing and then his corpse is stolen and like his ghost is watching this like his corpse is stolen by this like famous i can't remember what he is but like turns out this like famous guy is like um a necrophiliac and like has sex with the corpse but like it ends up being this like really conventional short story structure of like there's this moment of like epiphany and like compassion Um, um i could never write a story like that yeah.
0: as, as you're telling me i'm just like how do people come up with yeah, this and, no, like, and then deliver it in a way that's actually compelling
1: right and so yeah i mean i think his short stories are like really um structural or at least like some of the time like really like structurally almost like conventional and like catchy whereas like sometimes his novels are really just like pushing like i'm gonna like spend like 300 pages like just cataloging crimes and you're gonna read it or not
0: yeah who else are you reading these days? Anything come to mind that you've had, that um, you've read recently that has stuck
1: to you? Let's see. What I'm working my way through Allie Smith's older stuff. Um uh, so that's been interesting. I read um There But For The. Um and yeah, her stuff is I like it's kind of difficult but really memorable. Um so that's one. Who else? Um, oh, I just read uh about just read a couple months ago the essex serpent by sarah perry have you oh yeah yeah that that was a
0: that was a book club pick for the nervous breakdown
1: oh yeah yeah anyway that i i loved that one and like i'm really interested in like yeah i've i've read a couple of uh, articles that sarah perry has written about like the gothic and like the influence of the gothic and like she talks about like one idea that just kind of like changed the way she thought about fiction which is um you know gothic fiction is um emotions as events um and i've been thinking about that a lot with my with my current novel of like how do you make like emotions, events. Like, like, I, like, give me an like,
0: example. Let's, let's take an emotion and, and, and extrapolate.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I would say like, based on the Essex Serpent, it's like this, you know, you have these really dramatic scenes that are like one person feeling like betrayed by someone else or something, but like that feeling of betrayal being like the you know the big dramatic thing, or like you know this feeling of like connection or whatever, and so it's like you have like external stuff happening, but like people yeah, just like people like reading other people and responding to other people being this this like invisible drama okay
0: that's it yeah like like that process that you're describing to me, like people who write in like a gothic vein or supernatural, Mm -hmm. uh, like it's all coming just for, I guess, I mean, I guess the question that, that, uh, comes to mind with respect to you and your work is like how much, like, is there any research? Is it all like internal work or just like research in terms of just like reading fiction and finding Mm -hmm. inspiration there? Or are you ever turning to nonfiction sources Mm -hmm. and are you ever going on like trips or whatever to Mm -hmm. do field research which you then take back Mm -hmm. and integrate? Or is it purely like just like an act of the mind?
1: No, I do a lot, a lot of research. Yeah, research is big for me. Um, With my first novel, um, I knew I wanted it to to be about someone who disappears and is never found. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time researching things like the Roanoke colony or like, you know, just these like unsolved mysteries of disappearance. And also just like as wide ranging as as I could find in terms of disappearance, you know, from anything from that to like, people who got disappeared in argentina oh wait, wait
0: what happened with the Roanoke colony i should know this yeah
1: so they were settled and then like the ships left um and when they came back the colony was just gone and like no one knows what happened to them um
0: native americans came in and put the hammer down
1: yeah that's one theory although like there are no remains that they could find so yeah nobody knows
0: yeah that's un- that's unusual yeah usually unsettling,
1: right yeah
0: Okay, what other, what are some other stories of disappearance that I should be unsettled uh, by? <clears throat> uh,
1: there's uh, D.B. Cooper, that guy who hijacked an airplane and then just disappeared. Um,
0: Did we ever find out what happened to that Malaysian jetliner?
1: No, I don't think so. What the fuck? I know, I know, no, because it's like crazy when these things happen, like now, where like stuff just disappears.
0: Yeah, my friend was telling me about a high school buddy of hers who like... Senior year of high school, right here in Los Angeles, like went out one night, never came home. No one knows what the fuck happened. Wow. Never found, no word, unsolved, uh-huh. cold case, disappeared, yeah, vanished off the face terrifying. of the earth. Yeah. And it's like, that. so this stuff happens. Right. Um. And I guess like you just go in and start researching this stuff. I mean, it, would, it seems like good fodder for fiction. You mm-hmm. start to read these stories like, and, and then you use them as like a jumping off point for your own. Yeah. But you invented a disappearance. Right. Right. That's fun. Yeah. I could do that Yeah, with enough work. It yeah. sounds like a lot of work. I don't know if I mm-hmm. could, you know, find, find the energy, but it sounds like something I could actually imagine myself doing. Mm-hmm. Whereas like some of these things just feel like so far afield, um, mm-hmm. that I'm kind of like, uh, I'm mystified by it. Yeah uh and so what's the new book about
1: the new book um yeah so this was one that grew more out of research than either of my first two novels so a few years ago i read this editorial in the washington post by this woman and it was this series of like people talking about things in their lives that meant a lot to them and this was a woman in her 60s who talked about um being a nudist and how like when she was in her like early 20s she was dating this guy and it was getting really serious and um one evening he like sat down with her and was like listen like i haven't told you this yet because you know i wasn't sure how you'd react but like i'm a nudist this is really important to me by the way
0: just to interject uh-huh. these, these people this man and this woman uh-huh. definitely did psychedelics
1: <laughs> yeah that seems likely you can feel, yeah you yeah. can feel it
0: rest you can rest assured
1: yeah so anyway like so he sat down with her said um yeah i'm a nudist." Like there's going to be this, like, nudist event at the beach. Like, I'd really like you to come. Like, it would mean a lot to me. And she was, you know, understandably hesitant, but um went and it ended up being this life-changing experience for her that, like, she found this really deep sense of community. She, like, felt better about her body. Um, and it was just this, like, yeah, just this transformative thing. And it's become this integral part of her her life and ideology in the decades since then. And, like, that was really compelling to me that, like, it's this thing that, like, I at least am inclined to like laugh about, or you know, you know that like. Here's my problem with nudists. Yeah, <laughs> they're, not, they're not hot enough.
0: I'm That's a really shallow thing to say, but every time there's like a documentary about the nudists, I'm always like, okay, just put something on, like you know, and maybe I'm revealing myself to be a judgmental dick by saying that, but um, I don't know.
1: Well, I think that's like that's part of the dynamic that that drew me to it. That it's like there's so much mixed. In, and so I started researching like the history of like nudist movements and like things like that. And you been like,
0: to a nudist colony? Uh, did, no, you didn't do field research. at I double. did not do, do the field Mormon, research. the naked Mormon on the beach. Like that would be, I think, a compelling research. That would be project. something. You should do yeah. it.
1: Yeah, come I on, should.
0: dude. You got to yeah. go all in. Don't don't uh, just dip your toe in the water.
1: <laughs> Here's the thing that was like the big. Um, like, uh, I don't know if I want to go to a nudist call. And it's like the towel thing that, like, y- anytime you sit down, you need to sit on a towel so you don't spread germs. Uh, yeah, and it's like, no, oh, it's yeah. It's like
0: it's it. that's, a, that's another part of it. This is unsanitary. Uh, right. You, you sitting on, a, like, a leather couch. Right. And it's just, like, hot outside. Right. It's
1: like, uh, I did enough research. So I was like, yeah, okay. Like, I can see this. Like, this is my-. But then, like, the towel thing, it's like, oh, like, that's why we wear pants, you know? I, I um, wonder,
0: like, what, psych- okay, okay, so what psychologically do people derive? Because I can't imagine, like, a feeling of liberation. Where you're like, well, like, here we are. And, like, at a certain mm-hmm. point, like, the novelty wears off probably fairly quickly. Right. But you feel like, what? Like, here, this is who I You're exposed. There's less to hide. You feel maybe like, like, it, it must play some sort of psychological trick on you. Like, I, you, maybe you're more honest. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You, you, it's hard to be, like, can you really bullshit people while you're, na- like, standing right. there naked? right. Are you going to, like, sell a used car to somebody if you're nude? Right. I don't think you are.
1: Yeah, and there's, like, a lot of, um, in more recent stuff I've read, just, like, a lot about, like, body positivity and, like, body acceptance that, like, for whatever reason, like, a lot of women... Find it easier to feel um, good in their bodies at like in like a nudist situation versus like at the beach or something like that, like in a swimming suit. And, I can like, see
0: that. I don't have body positivity. Yeah, I just tweeted the other day. I was like, I want a dancer's body. Uh-huh. I was reading about <laughs> uh, Pure Bar. Have you ever seen this before? No. Uh, bar classes or bar? A. Oh, oh
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's like this
0: article online, you know. And this is like typical for me, It was like this is the best, uh, you know, exercise in the world. But it's like mostly women who do this, mm-hmm. and it's how you get like a ballerina's body. Interesting. And I was like, that sounds good. Yeah. I want a ballerina's body. Sure. Like male ballerinas. Like
1: yeah. Oh do yeah. I do,
0: do I start doing like pop physique? Is this like part of my future? Uh, and then I, you know, I all of a sudden like come out of the wormhole, and I'm like, what the fuck was that all about? It's <laughs> like 45 minutes contemplating my future at Pure Bar. Um, but I can see that like, you know, like body positivity, uh, it's not something that's probably common in our culture. I think, I think most people, almost everybody I know probably feels a little bit shitty about their body. Yeah. Bodies are kind of ugly.
1: They're weird. And like, that's another thing that's interesting (laughs) to me, like, just like in researching this is like, yeah, bodies are weird and like are so distinctive and it's like, yeah, I think sometimes in my mind it's like oh, yeah, like, people's body parts just look broadly the same, but they don't. And... Yeah, there's all sorts of weirdnesses. Yeah, and, like, that's fascinating. But, it, but
0: it, like, it shouldn't be, yeah. I mean, like, I say they're ugly, but, like, there is are also, like, beautiful. Like, I guess. But then it's, like, I feel like a pressure to be, like, bodies are beautiful. It's, like, no, they're really fucking not. They're kind of hairy and disgusting. At least male bodies. Um, but that's interesting. That sounds like interesting fodder. Yeah. Uh, I think that as part of your field research, this is just what I'm going to suggest. Okay. Him, and then when the book is done, you can come back, Okay. go to a nudist beach and uh, drop acid and okay. come back and tell me what happened. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you and your wife can walk like Adam and Eve, yep. uh, or I guess what, did Joseph Smith have a wife? Uh, yes. Several. Oh, he, oh that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> well, but you can walk <laughs> like Joseph Smith and one of his wives down the beach and uh, hallucinate. It'll be a, you know a bonding experience. Um, all right, well, it's good to, it's good to get a chance to talk with you and, uh, to meet, I think my, the first Mormon author I've had on this program. Wow. It's, it's, I'm way overdue. I'm mm. realizing. There you go. Um, all right, well, listen, I wish you well on the writing, uh, and like the cleaning up the fir- of the first sloppy draft. Thank you. Of what we are calling, I guess the working title is nudist book.
1: Nudist book. Yeah. Is that
0: what you sort of, how do you refer to it to yourself?
1: Um, I actually have a working title for it. It's, uh, the queen of all flesh.
0: The queen of all flesh. Damn. I'd read that. Thanks. Right. Yeah. America needs that. Um, <laughs> how far off do you think you are from finishing? Like um, when, can, when can we? When do you think we can expect? Like, if you had to ballpark it?
1: If I had to ballpark it? Like, I bet I could finish a draft this year, depending on what the work situation is. Do you so. have a,
0: a publisher? Like, is Penguin going to do it, or are you going to go back out?
1: Um, I don't have a contract with Penguin, but I've talked with my editor at Penguin about it, and he okay. found it interested-ish. So.
0: Yeah. No, yeah. I think it's a... I mean, it feels like something that... Uh, would sell. People like naked people. People like naked people. people or like the n- idea of naked
1: people. And people are
0: body obsessed. Right. We live in a body obsessed uh, culture. I like, I wonder too, I guess like there are cultures in this planet, like Brazil for example. I feel like they're a lot, a lot less self-conscious about their bodies. Mm-hmm. They go to the beach, they're like almost totally nude. They don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> As wasn't a Mormon like, missionary, you right, must have, right,
0: right. You must like, have noticed. Like, I mean. Dude's my, yeah, no, yeah. I
1: I mean... <laughs> Yeah, there are definitely like different attitudes, and like I wasn't immersed enough to be able to like speak to that. But yeah, it is. It does seem super cultural. Did
0: you go to Rio and like Ipanema and stuff like that? No,
1: I was. Uh, you weren't in on the South beach, like the excuse time. me, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> if
0: I could interrupt this volleyball game, <laughs> right. uh, I have some interesting literature for you. Um, so you, but you were just mostly in the city.
1: Yeah, there's
0: not a lot of naked people in the city. Not a lot, but they're they're there. They're just sure. you don't see them. Uh huh. Uh, all right, man. Well, listen. I appreciate you making the trip here. I congratulate you on uh, the success of your book and uh, just the 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 lovely publication of it. It's a good looking book. Thanks. Yeah. And like sometimes writers, like we were talking a little bit about this, I think before we came on. Mm-hmm. You know, book jacket design. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of uh, a lot of that stuff's out of your hands, right? So you're sort of at the mercy of your publisher mm-hmm. and the artist that they hired. But they did a nice job for you. Yeah.
1: Well, Staley designed it, and it looks fantastic
0: how many iterations did you go through before you got to the one that we see
1: i was shown three different versions and this was the one i liked and seemed to be the one everyone else liked too so there were some good candidates though yeah that's good yeah all right man well listen best of luck thanks for coming over thanks for having me
0: all right you guys there you go that is tim workus his novel is called the infinite future out there now from penguin press go get your copy you can find him on the internet at tim Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the Other People app. It's free. Don't forget if you want to uh, email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Uh, Reach out. Say something. And uh, don't forget if you would like to support the program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So yeah, I don't know. Here I am in times of uh, flux and crisis or times of change. I'm evolving into a new Brad. Going to listen to some Super Soul Sunday. Try to see what uh, Oprah tells me. I'm going to try to listen to some Timothy Ferris, High Priest of Capitalism. Do some Tony Robbins. Take an ice bath. Start taking HGH. I know what I'm going to do. Reinvent myself. Not afraid. I don't fear success. You ever just feel like a weird animal like I think I'm a weird human animal. I'm a good animal I I, mean, I, I like I, it's not like I'm down on myself. I'm just like what I guess that's why I'm a, I have a podcast a literary podcast. You don't get into this business. But then I'm now I'm contradicting what I said at the top. Maybe I'm not weird maybe I'm the norm. Maybe I speak for the common man. Maybe most of us in some way are like this or feel this way. You guys gotta let me know You also need to tell me what I need what, what should I do with my life Enough of this silent treatment I'm sick of this bullshit It's not my responsibility to figure it out It's yours Tell me What is the viable path forward? I need a viable path I feel like I could have some sort of a radio show But the thing about it is that It would have to be free Like I couldn't do it on terrestrial radio Or I guess I could, but I would feel encumbered. It's like, oh, you're restricted. It's like, you can't really speak your mind. You got to make sure you're not upsetting the corporate parent. Like, that's the beauty of podcasting is that you can be unfiltered. You can be like entirely yourself for better or for worse, often both in the same episode. But it's much more interesting to me. You know, I guess people have their preferences and maybe I could do it and find deep satisfaction in like working within those confines. But it would have to be maybe like a satellite radio.